So it's uh, nice to have you with us, folks. Uh, f- what are we still talking about? Gesundheit, yeah, it's Gesundheit with Jacobus <laughs> on Sunday mornings. I just forgot where we were. We have a couple callers who would like to get in touch. Uh, caller number one, you're uh, on the radio with Dr. Robert Cheney. What is your name and how can we help you, please? My name is Eric. Eric, good morning to you. Morning, uh, you guys. That was a lively reintroduction after the news there. Um, I had a question for the doctor um, regarding whooping cough. I was wondering if he could uh, briefly touch on that and whether or not re-immunization would be important, necessary, indicated uh, for people that have, uh, you know, passed their prime. Well, it's a good question. Whooping cough... Uh, the classic whooping cough, of course, is caused by a certain uh, infectious agent, and it can be severe. It can be fatal. It can affect any age group, a little bit more common in, in younger folks, which is why it uh, came around as being one of the uh, diseases that uh, physicians and science were able to immunize uh, people for, like measles and smallpox and so forth. So in answer to your question, I think uh, immunization uh, for pertussis, which is the uh, agent that causes uh, whooping cough, it lasts many, many, many years. So if you've had it, meaning the immunization, it's probably unnecessary to re-immunize. Unnecessary? Is that what you said? No, probably not necessary. Not necessary. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Is there a resurgence of pertussis now compared to years ago? or? Well, I think... There has been a bit for two things. One, it's a little bit more in the news. And secondly, that resurgence may be because many parents are uh, not wanting to immunize their children, realizing there are some children who get sick from immunization. But the bottom line is thousands and thousands of children into adulthood are protected. But uh, as you may uh, know, there are a lot of uh, parents over the last 10 or 15 years who do not want to immunize their children. Yeah. So what has happened is that there's been a bit of a resurgence of uh, whooping cough. Oh, interesting. Well, one yeah. last question, if yeah. I may. Go ahead, Eric. Um, as you gain altitude, uh, is there a formula that uh, one can see a decline in the uh, percentage of oxygen in the air? Uh, yes, there is, and it's a fairly linear relationship. Now, there's some sea level to the summit of Mount Everest, and... Uh, if one looks at the percentage of oxygen available at different altitudes, uh, you can predict. For instance, at, say, 7,000 feet uh, where Mexico City is, there's, it's a, in the low 80% range of the oxygen available as there is compared, uh, compared to sea level. And that may not sound like a, a large decrease, but for an athlete uh, wanting to perform at that altitude it is, for a patient, I mean, even here in Bozeman, where, where we're at about 5,000 feet, patients who come here with uh, severe emphysema or bad persistent asthma, that little decrease in oxygen availability is, is very, very uh, obvious. So they may not be able to do well. Uh, if you go to, say, 10,000 feet, where Leadville, Colorado is, it's in the 73 or 74% of oxygen available. If you go to altitudes where people live in South America, like Morticocha or Cerro de Pasco, the availability of oxygen 
is about 60%, and at 18,000 feet where we had our base camp on Everest, it's about 50%, mm -hmm. and on the summit, it's about a third. So, yes, you can predict. Mm -hmm. You don't think we should be giving a handicap to teams that come and play up here at Bozeman? <laughs> well, that, that's actually a very interesting question, and there, in South America, for instance, there's a lot of controversy on the the soccer teams, who yeah. uh, some of, some of whom are living at twelve or thirteen thousand feet. If other teams, say from Lima, or uh, well, Ecuador, they they actually canceled uh, preliminary games for the World Cup. They said it wasn't fair for other countries from South America to come play in Ecuador because they're up on twelve thousand feet or yes, something. Yes, that's so, exactly right. Yeah. So it's hard for teams to go but to. They can, but they stopped that now. They say no, we can play games over yeah, there. Yeah, it's it's a big <laughs> controversy. It's a great question, and uh, one wonders uh, teams coming. Well, for instance, the Denver professional Broncos. teams. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh, they're at 5,000 feet like we are here, and there is probably some advantage. Now, something we haven't talked about this morning, which we might or might not have time for, is there's certainly a downside to training at high altitude, say from 8,000 feet or above. Uh, uh, it's not all benefit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Well, thank you very kindly. Well, yeah, thanks, you're Eric. welcome. Great calls. We have a caller who's been waiting also for a few minutes. Uh, you're next online. What uh, is, you're, what is your name? Is Ron. Hey, Ron. Good morning to you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say there is a, a, a totally chicken tongue record called In the Mood somewhere, I've, I've heard one time, uh, but that's not my question. Uh, <laughs> I'm a retired truck driver, and I notice as I travel around the country that you see more people on supplemental oxygen uh, at higher altitudes like Flagstaff and Denver and even around here where we're close to 5,000 feet. Uh, where along the California coast or Corpus Christi, you don't notice it as much. And uh, I did a little private survey and asked people that I've noticed with uh, supplemental oxygen if they spent their whole life here or you know where they come from. And uh, and everyone I've talked to has come from sea level. And it might just be a coincidence, but I'm wondering if uh, if there's you know your body gets used to breathing at a certain rhythm at a certain place where you live and uh, and doesn't quite catch up with it if you move to higher altitudes. Hmm. That, too, is an excellent question, and I think that uh, your observation or your survey is, is quite valid. There are people who do, who have underlying, say, lung disease, who do perfectly fine at sea level or, or lower altitudes, but that decrease in barometric pressure, that decrease in availability of oxygen that occurs, even here at 5,000 feet, may be just enough to tip them over to the point that they don't do well. And so I think that uh, there were sort of two parts to your question. One, those people who come from low altitude don't realize that they're coming to higher altitude, whether it's here or Flagstaff is over 7,000 feet, so it's even higher, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, higher, uh, that that increase in altitude just tips them over. Uh, the other thing has to do with is there an advantage to living at these kinds of altitudes? And I think certainly unless you're predisposed and, and unless you're a heavy smoker with emphysema, uh, living at these altitudes, five to 7,000 feet is probably fairly healthy. But, uh, but an underlying disease uh, sometimes can't be tolerated at these altitudes. For instance, what often isn't known is that if you fly in an airplane, that airplane is pressurized to 8,000 feet approximately. Okay. 
uh, altitude so that when I have patients who live here, for instance, or patients who live uh, when I was in Seattle or, or San Diego, basically sea level, if they had bad emphysema, a two, three, eight-hour flight uh, would not be tolerated very well. So they have to have supplemental oxygen. Oh. Uh, anyway, that, that was pretty much my question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Caller, your name, please. How can we help you? Uh, this is Dolores. Dolores, good morning to you. Good morning. Doctor, I moved here from uh, sea level, and uh, I had a touch of emphysema. Nothing serious, but I was on oxygen two liters at, at night, and only at night. Well, I've been here, I came here a year ago, and in March they um, discovered that I was having a problem with the oxygen. And it's surprising to me because I skied, uh, what, 12,000 feet sometimes. Uh, 10,000, you know, it's uh, uh, big sky is the last place I skied. Anyway, my problem now is I'm on oxygen 24-7, and I'm up to four liters. And is there anything I can do about this? Since you're a specialist in this area, I would appreciate any advice. Yes. Uh, well, I am very familiar with your problem and uh, sympathize with it. And I think that the history of your having uh, necessarily needed oxygen at night is common because as we sleep, we tend to breathe a little bit less just because we're relaxed, but our oxygen level can fall to low levels so that nighttime oxygen is helpful for patients like you. Over uh, time, then you add the element of a little bit higher altitude, and as I mentioned earlier, it's just high enough here that it, it, it may trigger uh, adverse responses to low oxygen and thus you may need oxygen all the time as it sounds like your physician has prescribed for you and um, you know if the important thing is to take the best care of your health in terms of getting as much exercise which may be just walking which is perfectly fine whether you're skiing anymore or not really uh, that'd be great if you can but if you're using oxygen <coughs> and going to higher altitude uh, I'm inferring that it's more difficult or not possible, but to do exercise, to eat well, and there may come a point, and there have been studies in Colorado that have shown patients with underlying lung disease, whether it's fibrosis or emphysema, have had to move down to lower altitudes. So that, uh, you know, I hope that isn't the, the case for you and that you can continue to uh, love living here and staying here. But it isn't. It is something that'll need to be discussed with you and your physician if your emphysema gets worse. And I assume you've stopped smoking. Oh, I stopped smoking twenty years ago. Excellent. Well, that was the first best thing you did for your health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because so, because your emphysema would have progressed much more rapidly uh, if you had continued to smoke. And those data are very, very obvious. So, good mm-hmm. luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Laura. All the best to you. She brings up a a disorder, emphysema, which I think we should spend a little bit of time with because the number one cause is smoking, but it doesn't always have to be smoking. Is that right? That's correct. And as uh, you alluded to, the large, large majority of patients with emphysema uh, are smokers. There are some genetic disorders, in other words, those that are inherited that uh, you you chose your parents for, (laughs) for better or worse. Yeah. 
that can lead to an emphysema type of problem that, as I say, you don't have much choice over, although it has been well shown that if you smoke and have the genetic predisposition that it can become very severe within, you know, in your 30s and so forth. Now, genetics is such a critical part of all of this mm. because we all have friends or relatives who've smoked into their 70s or 80s and they say, look, I don't have any lung disease. And they obviously have some, yeah. but they may not be, you know, knocked down by it. But it so that's, symptoms, yeah. Yeah, and what has been uh, learned over the, the last 20 or 30 years is that the genetic predisposition is manifest with greater or less severity in each of us. So that uh, the, the bottom line is we, we had to choose our parents fairly well, but also the, the bottom, bottom line for us to improve our health is not to start or to stop smoking if you have. Hmm. Okay. Any suggestions that people can do for emphysema? Well, I think once that diagnosis has been made, and that is, it's so interesting, it's a, it's a process that's evolved when somebody, when a patient comes to us, that the process has been going on for decades. Okay. And they may say, oh, I d I've never had any lung problems until you know, three months ago. And then you do breathing tests that we do at the hospital mm -hmm. and look that uh, their, their emphysema is moderate or even severe. And so we know historically this has been going on for a long, long time. I see. But if a physician gives you the diagnosis of emphysema yeah. and it's been given properly, first thing is stop smoking. Second thing is to try to stay as active as possible within the limits of your disease. Mm -hmm. To eat well, keep your weight appropriate because the more weight demands more of your metabolism. And uh, if necessary, use the appropriate medications, uh, which are pretty safe mm -hmm. in terms of your health. We always like to minimize extra drugs, mm -hmm. but many of our patients require some for the improvement of their their disease or to stave off the worsening of their disease. Mm -hmm. So I think to be compliant, to stop smoking, and to stay as active as possible is really critical. When you talk about bronchitis, we're talking about the bronchial tubes that are inflamed in the lungs. And I'd like you to give more details on that. When you talk about pulmonary fibrosis, you talk about the, um, the air sacs in the lungs, the actual air bubbles that become that, that start to deteriorate, become infected, and become scar tissue. What happens in emphysema? Mm -hmm. Well, emphysema is sort of the, um, the far extreme of what occurs in terms of obstructive airway disease. And by obstruction, I'm referring to those entities that cause a decrease in airflow that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. In other words, the difference between breathing through a garden hose and a drinking straw. Yeah. And inflammation of the cells of the airways, whether it's from asthma or smoking, lead to narrowing of the airways. Well, the airways here, so there is a difference between bronchial tubes yes. and airways, right? Well, no. I'm referring to the airways as all of the bronchial tubes. In other words, the trachea is the big one that goes okay. down the middle, mm -hmm. and then it divides to the right and the left, and then those airways, the various bronchi and bronchioles, divide into, you know, thousands of smaller and smaller Like a, like a tree, the yes. kind of branches, so... Perfect. Okay, all yeah. right. And those are the airways. And it's that part of the lung that becomes inflamed and edematous 
uh, with secretions from asthma. Okay. Now bronchitis, Yeah. people with asthma can have bronchitis, and its definition is an obstructive type of impairment in your physiology that is almost always worsened by smoking. And people with chronic bronchitis have chronic cough and sputum production, mm. uh, you know, sometimes every day, sometimes every, a few weeks out of every month that can lead with, uh, can lead to emphysema mm -hmm. because that ongoing inflammation can cause breakdown then of the lung tissue. And emphysema is really like Swiss cheese. Okay. In other words, if you take a section of the lung, uh, big holes and patches of it are broken down like Swiss cheese. I see. But so the bronchial tubes, well, some people have chronic bronchitis. And emphysema is also chronic. It, yeah. it can start slow and then it can go chronic. All right. Well, uh, this is good because I, I, I'm a very visual person. I try to visualize what you're saying so that I can say, okay, this is how this is how I see this. And I may have to grab some pictures so that I can look at the lungs that you can tell us okay. on the air. So. All right. <laughs> and then I'll we'll, see you on the radio. Yeah, we'll see you on the radio. <laughs> Charles Osgood right. says. All right, folks. Uh, uh, Dr. Robert Cheney, just moving to the Gallatin Valley in June, is a medical doctor and he is a pulmonary critical care physician. He is with us for another hour. So we hope that you stay with us. We're going to be right back after the news.